0: Some people work in nine to five jobs. I am one of the lucky ones. Somehow I landed in the dream job. Welcome to Tales of a Luxury Yacht Chef. Hi, I'm Lisa Mead and for the past 27 years I've been working on luxury superyachts yachts in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean and my home turf of Australia. I've cooked for royalty, heads of state, celebrities and all walks of life. I'm going to be talking to crew, past charter guests and loads of people that are connected to the global yachting community. We're going to hear amazing fun stories and also lots of useful information and tips. So welcome aboard. My guest on today's podcast is Jason Dacey, TV and radio broadcaster, journalist and media executive. We met at Radio 4BC and share a love of Singapore and Asian food. Jason's had quite the career so far, and I'm really keen to find out more today. Hey, Jason, how are you?
1: I'm very well, Lisa. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a bit of a turning the tables because uh, normally <laughs> you're coming on my show and I'm filling in for, for Spencer Houston on, on 4BC on the weekends.
0: Absolutely, yes. It's nice to have the shoe on the other foot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so where, where are you talking to us from in Brisbane today? What what area?
1: I'm in the Norman Park, Cooparoo area, um, which is very close to Churchy, the, the private school uh, between Cooparoo AFL and East Rugby. Um, and you might hear a train going by. That's between Norman Park and Cooparoo. And, and it, it actually reminds me a lot of where I grew up in Sydney, Um sort of, you know, quite close to the city, the other side from the, the city, of the other side of the harbour. And uh, I like inner city living. I really, uh, especially in Brisbane, it's so, so pleasant and green and, and kind of peaceful.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned growing up in Sydney. Is that where you were born?
1: Yes, I was born in Sydney and I grew up on the lower north shore of Sydney and my mum still lives in the house where we grew up. Wow. Um, which is just over the bridge. It's a short walk from Sydney Harbour. And when, when we grew up there, it wasn't really um, sought after at all. It was inner city area. It was working class. Um, wasn't very green. Uh, and then in the 70s and 80s, it really changed. It suddenly became upmarket and a bit like Paddington over the other side of the bridge of Sydney it became you know a bit yuppified if you like and <laughs> and they painted the bus shelters in a nice sort of color and and the houses were done up and you know advertising agencies moved in and art studios the butcher shops left <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, uh, it really changed its character and my mum still lives there she's 87 years old and, and we moved into that house where she's living it must be 50
0: years ago now Wow, that's amazing. How cool that she's still there. Uh, do you have any any fond memories from growing up in that area?
1: Yes, I do. Because um, at that time, Sydney Harbour was um, quite dirty and polluted. And as part of the regeneration of Sydney, it, they cleaned up Sydney Harbour. So I remember going on school excursions and going down to, to clean up Sydney Harbour at, on the north side and picking up rubbish and and just seeing the transformation of that. Uh, and then I think it was a good area to grow up in. I actually have a good memory of in 1976, I went to North Sydney Boys High School, which was a really good school. Mm. And we were, and this was kind of an early media memory. In 1976, I think I was in year nine, we went to the ABC in Gore Hill to see Sherbert record its uh, new <laughs> single, um, which was called How's That?
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, God, so how was that? Would have been an incredible show.
1: It was, it was, it was just kind of like a, doing a film clip. I think they may have done another song or two, but it was funny because you know, as a kid, as a teenager in the 70s, it wasn't cool as a guy to like sherbet, <laughs> it was all skyhooks or t, you know, Ted Mulry gang or whatever else. And I remember Daryl Braithwaite waved to us as we left you know because we had to go back to school and we kind of ignored him a bit you know we kind of we weren't very uh, we we're a bit half-hearted when we waved back to him and I'm like I felt <laughs> like I about that for years too cool for school yes exactly it's funny how you know it was an all-boys school so um you know when we we're kids and, and teenagers there's different kind of peer pressures and and all that um but yeah it was it was a good childhood um my mum was into cooking as i've shared with you before off air yes she was a uh, she was a cooking teacher and she was actually a behind-the-scenes person for bernard king who was uh, who had a cooking show on channel 10.
0: wow
1: yeah so her and her friend maureen um who was a good friend from teenage years they they were the behind-the-scenes cooks for the bernard king show at channel 10.
0: How did she get into
1: to that job? I think it might have been through a friend, Maureen, who knew, knew Margaret Fulton. Remember yeah. Margaret Fulton? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's yeah. a legend so, in the cooking industry.
1: Yeah, so my mum may have met Margaret Fulton, but my mum's friend Maureen was friends with Margaret Fulton, and I think it's through that community that they kind of said, "Well, this person cooks well." And so Bernard King, who was um, you know flamboyant um, you know performer yeah. and a bit like the Australia's Liberace, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, the Liberace of the culinary world. He was, yes. And, and you know, and he, he used to be a, a judge on a on a talent show as well, and known as like the Simon Cowell of the
0: time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's probably quite true. Yeah. Yes. I wonder if that that little taste, I mean, through your mum had any kind of inkling in your, your coming career, do you think? I think Just- a little bit. And and my dad
1: was in he was an ad man. So he was in the advertising world and, ah. and he he came up with um advertising. Um, campaigns and and you there was that famous one that I'm sure you you probably remember Lisa that where the lemon exploded from the washing powder. I think it was for fab. You know, they start talking about the lemon the lemon scent of fab. (laughs) And they're kind of talking about it. And then you can see the woman who's a bit worried when they're talking about it and then suddenly all the lemons explode from the the washing powder packet, you know, and they're covered with lemons. And that was one of the
0: campaigns that my dad really. Yes. Yes. Wow. What, what incredible parents! What what talented parents you have! It, yes, indeed,
1: indeed. Uh, you know, sadly, my dad passed away when I was quite young. But even even saying that, it, he set the uh, scene for me, I guess, in terms of he was a writer, he was an artist, and he was in the media industry. And and I guess I felt that I could see what he was doing in the creative field, and it, it was inspirational for me. And and, I, and from a young age, I, I love writing and, and I love sports, you know, growing up as a kid in the 60s and 70s. And so I, I kind of early on, I said, oh, I'd love to write about sports, which I love to do, and I love writing. So that was kind of
0: my uh, idea of what the career might uh, turn out to be. So you finish high school and obviously this this idea is just cooking away in your, in your mind. What did you do after finishing school, high school?
1: Yeah, so in the last couple of years of um, high school, I... Um, started working for local newspapers uh, uh, on the weekend and doing sports reports. And um, that kind of grew into working for Australian Associated Press at the weekend, again, mostly doing sports reports, but I would occasionally do other stuff. I worked for a a trade magazine called Inside Retailing and another trade magazine called Food Week. You know, I don't know why they wanted a a teenager writing articles. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they were desperate. So. By the time, um, you know, I got to the end of year 12 in, in 1979, I had applied to get into the Sydney Morning Herald as a cadet journalist. And actually, uh, you know, I was told to have a good chance, but as you'd imagine, it was very competitive. There are a lot of people that were applying for these jobs. And on the same day, I got my HSC results, the higher school certificate for New South Wales. I got an acceptance letter from um, the Sydney Morning Herald saying I've been accepted. Wow! To be a cadet journalist. It was December nineteen seventy nine, wow. and uh, I got my results. I don't. I got both letters, and I wasn't sure which one to open first. <laughs> oh, wow! So I opened the um, the one from John Fairfax and Sons, which is now, of course, um, nine newspapers. I mm. uh, would have thought? And uh, yeah, you've been accepted. We're delighted to say you've been accepted as a cadet journalist, and you know, turn up to. Uh, work on this date in, in, in 1980. Uh, and oh. then I opened up my my school results, and they were pretty good. And I passed English, which I had to do. Um, and that was the beginning of my career.
0: That's amazing. Do you, do you remember any standout moments from those days?
1: Yeah, I do, because it was, uh, you know, newspapers were big, just like they were here in Queensland in that time, all around Australia. It was really the era of newspapers, uh, free-to-air television, and of course, radio. And, you know, I had some big stories. I I, Actually, the day that John Lennon died in in 1980, he was assassinated. I was a big Beatles fan and a big Mm. John Lennon fan. The day that he died, a Soviet defector jumped ship. Remember, this is the height of the Cold War. Right. Soviet defector jumped ship in Sydney Harbour and was seeking asylum, and I tracked that defector down. As really? Yes.
0: <laughs> That's incredible.
1: Yeah, because I was I was on the shipping round, so there was a job. All these, all the young journo's, the cadet journo's, did these very menial jobs, whether it was police rounds or you know cutting up photographs of the paper, or, you know, basically really menial jobs. And one of them was the shipping round where you got the ins and outs of ships that were coming in and out of Sydney Harbor. And so I went down to the maritime services board at circular key. And I would just, I sort of build up a relationship with the guy down there. It was a British guy called Michael. And he said, Oh, look, I don't know whether you're interested, but there's a, we, we hear that there's a Soviet seaman who's jumped ship seeking asylum. And we believe he's shacked up with a, with an Aussie girlfriend. Do you want the story? wow yeah so i wrote the story a small story and the next day they saw my byline in the paper and then you know cut a long story short i they said Do you want to speak to victor his name was victor and uh we got this big exclusive story and and it was um that was kind of the first scoop that i ever had and that was that was the i guess gave me that sense of uh, excitement and and i
0: always loved chasing a big story yeah absolutely speaking of big stories uh, another one of your early big breaks came when you were able to get an exclusive story in, I think it was 1983, from inside the New York Yacht Club, when Australians won America's Cup for the first time. What was that experience like? Yeah, Lisa, that
1: was a complete fluke, really, because I wasn't even supposed to be in New York. I planned my first ever US holiday. I was 21 years of age. And just because of uh, the dates, I ended up in New York the day that Australia, too, won the america's cup it was at rhode island which is a couple of hours north of of uh, new york as you probably know and it's mm. obviously a big big uh, yachting place lots of um, bo- boats there of all yeah. kinds so i um, got the idea to try and get into the new york yacht club which was in manhattan and that was the sponsor of the of the boat liberty that had lost the america's cup for the first time in 133 years i think it was uh, 132 years and yeah so i talked my way into the club they when i arrived the America's Cup was literally leaving like a coffin, like a kind of a hearse. I literally arrived then because they were taking it from the club up in an armored vehicle up to Rhode Island for the presentation for John Bertrand and Alan Bond and all that to enjoy. So they had to get it out of the club. Um, so the trophy came out. And a few members came out and a lot of them were crying and all that and wow yeah so i, I approached one and i said and i'd borrowed a blazer i'd borrowed a blazer. <laughs> i met um, some other aussie journos there and i was just still on holidays i didn't have anything any formal wear need a blazer <laughs> to get in i sort of approached this guy that was crying and i said look i'm an aussie journo i'm from sydney and um you know i'm interested in finding out what happened today and and he kind of paused and i was worried that he would you know and start sort of hurling insults at me <laughs> <laughs> but he actually sort of asked me to come into the club and have dinner with him and his wife wow he Signed me in he signed me in and so i came in the club and had dinner with him and asked and met him and other members and wrote this story about what happened the day that um australia won the america's cup for the first time within the the losing clubs uh, losing that is club
0: such a great uh, storyline. Yeah. Yes,
1: yeah, and, that, and that, was, that was a story that was on the, the front page in 1983, and it was that story that really got me um, a job at Channel 7 in Sydney, and that was really the beginning of my uh, electronic TV career, you know, my outside newspapers.
0: Yeah, so you, you, you went on to the Seven Network and then I uh, as a producer at SBS. What is the role of a TV producer? You were working as a reporter and, and a producer. What, what do you do as a producer?
1: Well, firstly, at seven, I was a reporter, so I got I went on the road as a news reporter, and then uh-huh. uh, I kind of was just doing regular news. And of course, it was a very challenging transition. And then I, um, I think, because I, I had interviewed someone from the Willacy Show before, and that so the Willacy Show liked my interviewing style, even though I was very green and raw. So they took me on board. But later on, when I became a producer, it's more about um, you know setting up the stories for the reporters and, and the and the uh, presenters and, and doing the rundown uh, which is kind of the you know what you see on a tv show uh in in film producer is generally the person who comes up with the money and, and, mm. the, and the logistics whereas in tv it's more about helping um set up the content and, and the stories and making sure that they're executed
0: and edited so yeah you're, you're sort of the overall controller of the situation making sure everything's running smoothly and
1: Yes, yes.
0: And of course, you have an executive producer,
1: which sits above the producer. So the producer is more hands on doing individual stories uh, with the reporter or presenter, and the executive producer looks over the whole show. Um, But pretty much early on, I knew that I wanted to be in front of the camera rather than behind the camera. So uh, as much as I did producing, um, I always had the dream of of being a presenter on, on TV. You know, that was my that was the goal that I had, but there was a big gap because I didn't have the skills, the confidence or many, many attributes that you need. So I needed to find a way to, to develop them.
0: So when you're starting out um, doing your first bits on TV, what training is involved prior to actually getting in front of the camera? Were you given any sort of lessons on, you know, how to stand, you know, where to look? Or was it just, here you go, here's the microphone, go?
1: Well, they try it to help a bit. And there's a famous voiceover guy called Max Rowley, who was the voice of many big shows like The Great Temptation and Perfect Match. You may remember that yes. show, Lisa, from the the, 90, the 80s. Um and he he was an old-time radio guy and he was the in-house trainer at Channel 7 in Sydney but he's trained a lot of people um over the years even Peter Gooch the traffic reporter from 4BC ah. 70 years old sorry about that Gucci <laughs> he was trained by uh, Max Rowley as well wow but there are a lot of people uh who have been trained by him so that was part of it but um yeah there, there were pre- I mean the cameramen were very or the camera operators were very helpful as well but I, I had so much to learn I was it was just such a big uh, change from being a, a print journal when you're writing long stories to writing mm. short scripts and then also having the confidence and the poise to to be good on camera. I wasn't good on camera to start with at all. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd
0: be surprised if anybody was. <laughs> yeah. So next up, you head off to London where you you start out at Sky News and Reuters and then BBC. And before long, you're promoted to the senior sports anchor on BBC World News. What were some of the highlights from your time there?
1: Oh well, look. You know, I felt that the UK was a really formative time for my for me, uh, and I think I always had the feeling that I'd have more success overseas. I don't know why. I just had the feeling, and also I loved traveling. From doing that story in New York, it really gave me a taste of adventure and the big story. Uh, so pretty much from the late '80s onwards, I I headed overseas, and um, I, I know I, I knew that I had to improve and find a way to improve. So I felt that being in the UK and and watching some of the great professionals there would help me get better and better and better and, and at sky news i was mostly a producer but i started to do some presenting and reporting there that was in the late like, late 80s and a lot of aussies actually helped set up sky news uk a lot of people from channel 10 in brisbane in fact went ah. over there so there were a lot of aussies there it was, it was so funny to see them all <laughs> it was like fish out of water and you know i remember in the the winter of 89, 88, 89, they were all there and, you know, wearing ski jackets like they were down at Threadbow. <laughs> <laughs> but they worked hard. We all worked hard.
0: Yeah. And
1: got it off the ground. Um, so but I think the, the thing for me that really helped me, helped me get better as a presenter, and I didn't really achieve this until I was in my early 30s, was doing theatre and doing music. Uh, and I did improv theatre in, in the UK just, just for fun, you know, in different groups. And I also, uh, you know, picked up a guitar and sang because I I I needed to find a key to unlock this part of me because I I felt that I really wanted to express myself as a broadcaster, but I didn't know how to do it. And and I think growing up, I was maybe a bit shy or not repressed, but I just wasn't the kind of person to be in the debate team or doing theater at school. So I thought I, I want to try and do this. And and by doing theater and music, suddenly the light came on and. In, in 1994, and I thought all my chances of being a success as a, as a presenter were gone. I was 32 years of age. And at the end of 94, a lot of the regular presenters at BBC World TV, I was a producer there. They all went, went away and they, and they said, look, Jason, you've done some presenting. Do you mind filling in <clears throat> and don't get the wrong idea? You're not going to be doing this for long. It's just for <laughs> So, OK, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, so I did it for two weeks and I'm, i am thought oh wow i'm not not really good am i i'm kind of rough you know and, and these other people are so much better than me and and you're doing it with lisa that with people that you've seen you know for years on tv you know how we used to see bbc reports and yes all those guys are project presenting you know in in the studio and i'm like wow tim sebastian philip hayton you know uh donald McCormack. there are so many big names i've seen for years mm. anyway at the end of those two weeks and <clears throat> that was the end of 94 my sports editor was a guy called David Brenner, who was a, a bit older than me, had a moustache, that sort of 80s moustache, looked like a <laughs> 70s moustache, actually. He got a phone call from the big boss, and I was at the desk, at the sports desk. So I'd done two weeks of fill-in presenting on BBC World, and he's he answers the phone, and I can tell they're talking about me. And he and it seems like it's from the big boss, right? And he's going, yep, yep, okay. Jason, yep, okay, right. And, and I'm like, I'm really worried. I'm thinking... I've been so bad that the (laughs) boss is called up to complain and say, this guy is never out. out." (laughs) Instead, it was, hey, look, um, you know, Jason's got got something I like and uh, I want him to be the main sports presenter, the senior sports presenter for next year. And I'm like, I was stunned. amazing. I was completely stunned because I really wasn't sure. I mean, I felt I did okay, but you know what it's like. You're not Hmm. really used to it. Uh, But he saw something in me. Uh, his name was Bob Wheaton. He was actually a South African, but a very British South African. Mm. And he saw something in me that he liked, and and, um, and I, from January 1995, I was the number one sports presenter for um, the BBC world uh, coverage. You know, from and I did a a European breakfast show. And Richard Quest, who a lot of uh, people might know, he's he a yes, yeah. So he was my he was the business presenter. I was the sports presenter. Wow. And we had this guy, Philip Hayton, who did all these reporting on Africa and, and, a, and a Canadian lady called Melinda Whitstock. So we had this European uh, show, European uh, news show, news and business and, and sport. So we did that, you know, and, and and I felt then my career was up and running, uh, that I'd made the breakthrough. So, you know, people could watch all over the world. I remember my I had a school friend in Japan. He was watching and the earthquake happened that year.
0: Ah. Uh-huh.
1: So, yeah, all sorts of people are watching, and you know my mum's watching, and uh, <laughs> it's it was like, after all these years of trying and not being very good at, at presenting, i I finally found a way to to be okay at it. I look back now, and it really, I wasn't very good back then. I'm a lot better now, but <laughs> i'd I'd improved enough to uh you know clearly, yeah. And,
0: I wonder if the improv and the singing just helped to kind of put you at ease. Um, and that's I'm just thinking while you're talking, I was thinking how clever of you to have gone in that direction because um, I think in some way it must have just kind of relaxed you enough to 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 be who you were on on camera. I think you're right. Yeah, I think we often get in our in our own way, don't we? We
1: want something mm. so badly that we're trying so hard. And I wanted just to loosen up. I just wanted not to be thinking about, oh, I can't make a mistake, rather than thinking about this is fun, I'm expressing myself. Uh, and that's I think what I've since been able to bring to broadcasting. And now it's just so automatic that I can do it, you know, any type of broadcast at any time. But then I needed to turn on that switch to really uh, get that side of me out. I felt, um, you know, I just needed some time to do it. And uh, I knew that was there somewhere. I, I I felt that I could do it. And I yeah. think I always had a decent, I, I always looked okay on camera. You know, I had the kind of clean cut look and all that. So yeah. that helped. But I just, you know, I was a bit flat on, on front of the camera. My voice wasn't very good. And um, I get very nervous and, you know. The Rightly fr- so.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, pretty scary stuff. <laughs> it, it can be. It can be. But again, the more you do
1: it, because being in a TV studio is a very unnatural environment. It's super unnatural and you're supposed to look natural.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were there for a while, but you you went on to work in the US and you became the first Australian sports anchor on CNN's Internationals World Sport 1999, which is incredibly impressive. Do you recall any sporting stories from that time that really just stood out to you?
1: I remember it was quite funny that it was the time of the Sydney 2000 Olympics, and I was doing the Olympic updates from Atlanta, Georgia, oh, <laughs> about wow. my hometown. So that that was fun. Um, yeah, I went down to the Masters golf. Um, you know, I covered some big tennis tournaments, and just being in that, that was probably in one way. It was it was almost like that was the next step on on the path that I'd done the British style of presenting, then moving to the US it's a different style. And the way I dressed in the, in the UK in the mid nineties, I'm wearing all these pastels, pastel colors and apricots and pinks and all that U S <laughs> that doesn't fly, you know? Um, so I had to adjust the way that I presented and And it's very much high energy in the U S so I needed to, and that's why I think why they like Richard quest, you know, he's got that high energy and yeah. in the U S as well. So I think I had to adjust the things that I, that I was doing. And I did, work in local news in denver colorado for about 18 months it's a kind of a transition i was a reporter there and i was just getting better and better and better more confident uh, and i just love that job i love being in atlanta georgia it was it's a great city it's a bit like brisbane in some ways a bigger brisbane with worse traffic <laughs> um, it's similar climate and
0: southern accents southern accents
1: yeah but it's actually quite a liberal city in many ways uh, it's got um, you know really good inner city and you know art scene and and everything like that so that we called it the world sport family um that that uh that era so we all played in a soccer team together oh wow yeah and I did community theater actually I did community theater in Atlanta um so I would often you know and going going back to my UK improv days I did a lot of uh, British farces and and this kind of stuff because I could do a British accent you know being an Aussie
0: yeah you never felt that you wanted to to kind of delve into that side of your career more like it into you know acting roles on TV or film or on stage I had thought about that.
1: I had thought about that. But to be honest, I think I'm better at as broad as a broadcaster. Uh, but it always interested me. And I always love doing acting lessons and, and you know, improv. And even my daughter, she's 12 and she loves it as well. Um, but um, no, I think I, I honestly don't know. not sure whether I remember an acting teacher saying to me that you'll get work if you became an actor, you would get work. So if, she said, you know, you, you're quite a good person to have in a in a play or a, or a film. You can get work.
0: That's and I actually did
1: appear in in a small film for BBC when I was there. Short. My friend from Improv was inviting me to come on it. I never saw it. <laughs> but it was, uh... He was actually he was in Mission Impossible with um, Tom Cruise. But wow! His, but his scene got cut out, so he wasn't in the. Oh final. no! That one on the train, the train. Remember the train? Yes, yes. He was on. He was on the train in that tra- that first Mission Impossible. Oh wow! He was an Aussie, actually, he was an Aussie, and he got me in this BBC film as a kind of his friend in the film.
0: So, what, like, your your role was? Playing a friend in the in the His film friend, that you didn't see. Uh, yeah, I
1: can't, it was a you know just a few lines, um, but I never saw it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see it now. It would have been nineteen ninety five, I think. Do you remember the name of the film? No, I, I don't
0: remember the name of the f- film. I'll have to see if I can find it. It would be funny to see it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I haven't I haven't been in a movie or anything like that. But um, when I was living in the Caribbean, I date there was a. Um, tv movie being made that was produced by bbc actually and it had some fairly big names in it it was um ebb tide and so it was this recreation of of you know the story set in the 1800s and in the caribbean and i by chance ended up dating the the second lead who was playing the bad guys this french actor during the six months that they were filming and um we basically moved in together and I remember him coming home from work and I'd say, so how was your day? And he'd say, "Oh, well, you know, it was good. I, I raped and pillaged some people today, women today. And yeah, it was a pretty good day. And I was thinking, oh. God, what a
1: weird existence you have. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, one of my best school friends, um, I went to school with the North City Boys High and we made films together when we, we make the, the super eight films. Remember those <laughs> super eight films? He became a very well-known um First assistant director, and he is the co-producer of the late latest Mad Max film. Um, his oh name, wow! His Pj Voten, uh, he's half half dutch half chinese background and he wow. was one of my best buddies and so we, yeah so he, he told me about though you know he knows nicole kidman and because nicole was in our same area she went to north sydney girls high we went to north sydney boys high. she's younger than we are but she wow. he knows all the actors and and even that um the sad uh, accident with the, the gun recently yes with alec baldwin you know he was talking about that um as well so i don't think i, I remember actually in in 1985 i went for the. Australian Film and Television School director position. And I got to the final shortlist. I was lit, I'd, I'd been working in TV for a few years, and they gave you a two day course, a two day uh, test at um, the Aussie Film and TV School. I didn't get in, but I often think, you know, what would have happened if I had got in. But honestly, I, I think I took the right path. Jason, is there anything that you can't do? <laughs> A lot of things. Ask my wife, I can't do anything. I <laughs> can't do anything around the house, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> now, you uh, left the States and you moved to Singapore and became the senior news presenter at ESPN Sports, uh, Star Sports. We've both lived in Singapore. What were your first impressions of, of moving to Singapore? Well, it was a big decision to make because, as I mentioned, I was so happy at CNN. I
1: really loved that job. I had lots of good friends. I was doing community theater, playing soccer. Um, But the money, uh, I wasn't making good money because Ah. they get you, you know, you're on a global news network and everyone can see you all around the world in 200 plus countries. But the money wasn't great. It was Mm. you know, not terrible, but not great. So a friend of mine had a friend living in Singapore and and was doing a, a, a similar job and I said, "What? What are they? What are they getting paid to do that? You know, it was it was a, it was a presenting job, but not as high profile." And and they told me it was a lot more than I was getting. So I put out an email to the head of ESPN Star Sports, the sports editor, a friend of mine now, a Liverpudlian called Des, and I said, "Look, um, just sort of exploring options. I'm at CNN. I've been here for a couple of years. Um, have you got anything going there?" And he he emails back immediately and says, yeah, we actually need a senior news presenter for the launch of Sports Center across Asia. Gosh. And I'm like, oh, wow. So then we started negotiating, and, and it was literally, you know, more than double what I was making in the uh, U.S.
0: Oh, it's a no-brainer in that situation.
1: It is. It is. And I had a friend who was a numbers guy, and, and I we crunched the numbers, you know, and I said, look, I really want to stay here at CNN, but this is really attractive. Yeah. And- and, he, and we, made, we basically did, tried to slant it towards staying in the U.S. And no matter which way we looked at it, it was like, you got to move. You know? Yeah. And I'd been to Singapore before, Lisa, and I'd been there in 82 as, as one of my first ever trip overseas. And that was before the MRT was built and there was nothing. Yes. It was really quiet. Um, but going back, you know, I mean, it was just after 9-11 at the end of 2001, I went back and uh, uh. it was just surreal to be in this sort of lush, tropical you know wonderland and i remember getting the taxi after flying in late at night i think it was the 1st of november 2001 and just the smell you know and the humidity
0: and going along the um the pie the main road that comes from the airport you know all- you're, you're saying the smell that's exactly the first thing that struck me was just the smell of singapore it, it, it definitely is is a very vibrant thing i think f- there's a sort of smell of durian in there somewhere, as well as all the other interesting smells. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So I um,
1: I was so happy that I did that looking back. It was a great decision to make. And obviously, you're going into a less professional environment compared to CNN or BBC. Yes. But that's where you kind of and I was just turning 40. I was just about to turn 40. And, you know, one of the reasons I was thinking, look, I've been in media for 20 years and I I haven't really made any money yet. I'm going to start trying to, you know, save some money. I was having a great great time. So this was my, so let's buckle down and try and, you know, make some money, save some money.
0: Yeah. And also experience too, of course. Absolutely. When you weren't working, what did you do for fun?
1: Oh, well, lots of things. Um, you know, being in Singapore, as you know, you can just easily pop over to Bintan or Batam or Phuket, so just an hour away. I did a lot of a lot of travelling. I also got into half marathons, I, I ah. running, which is the worst place to run. It's so hot and humid. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, did a bit of exercise with bikes and swimming, Um. and oh, I just really loved it. And I think I'd always loved um Asian food, and I think that was obviously with my mum she'd, you know, she'd prepare some Asian food, but living in the UK, I really fell in love with Indian food. And I know that you've traveled there and you've experienced the Indian cuisine of, of London. Uh, mm. It's amazing. It's, it's almost like the national dish now, isn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so that gave me the taste of, of Indian food. And of course, Singapore, you've got South Indian, North Indian, you've got the kind of fusion of Southeast Asian, you know, the Muslim Indian in, within Singapore and, and Malaysia. So uh, I was in heaven when it came to food.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, Newton Circus is always my go-to whenever I go back. Little India and Newton Circus are the first ones I hit.
1: Oh yes, yeah, I, I love those areas too. And uh, even, I mean, I know little tucked away Hawker centres too in little suburbs that that the tourists won't know. Um, and you know, there is everywhere you go, you can
0: find something good. Absolutely. Now, um, aside from TV, you've also worked in radio, uh, both in Singapore and Australia. If you had to choose, can you between which media platform?
1: I think now it's radio. I, I love radio, maybe because I worked in TV for so long, I can still do it. But about five, six years ago, I felt I was getting a bit stale and I'm, I've done just about everything I wanted to, especially as a sports broadcaster, having done lots of events. Mm. And I, I dabbled in radio here and there. But then I just thought, then maybe this is something that I can do um, you know, more seriously. And in 2018, I'd been working for Walt Disney Company in Singapore for four years, and they owned a, a football web soccer website called ESPN FC. So I was working under the Disney banner. Um, doing digital content. I was also doing some presenting for sports as well. But I just felt that once uh, that job ended, I actually got laid off um, after four years of working at Disney and getting all the Disney perks and traveling to Hong Kong Disneyland and and all that. I got laid off and I thought, well, this is a great chance. I've made some money. I've saved some money. You know, I've had a great time at Disney. Now I'm just going to try and get into radio full time. And Singapore Press Holdings in uh, Singapore, which uh, has the Straits Times newspaper, they had, were starting a new radio station called Money FM. And there was an Aussie guy from Brisbane that, that was looking after SPH Radio called Jamie Meldrum. His father, Ross Meldrum, is a bit of a legend in 4BC. In from No newspaper. relation to Molly Meldrum. No relation to Molly Meldrum. <laughs> I, I always <laughs> asked him. So uh, sadly... Um, Jamie has passed away since a couple of years ago. He wasn't that old either, um, but he was a great help to me. He sort of opened the way for me to get into Money FM. He recommended me because we'd become mates. Mm. And, um, you know, that was only in 2018. So it's only four years ago that I went full time into radio. And I was hosting the weekend morning show on Saturday and Sunday from 7 a.m. till midday. And doing it similar to what I've been doing when I fill in for Spencer on 4BC, having a, a show full of interviews, and I've shared some of the interviews I, I've done with you. With yes. The, uh, the one with um, Chef Neil Perry, uh, that was done a, a few years ago. But I did all sorts of interviews with all sorts of people, and and um, I thought, I'm home. This is what I love to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's such a great platform. but. I'm sure you've had loads of interviews, both on TV and radio, and there must have been some interesting moments where things maybe didn't go quite right or the interview was slightly awkward. Can you recall any of those? Well, one I can recall is when I was at BBC,
1: it would have been about 1995, and I was um, working on a different show, and I was doing the sports update, and I had to say the the Pakistan city, Faisalabad. And (laughs) it sounds easy to say now, but... Live across the world, you know, on BBC. Um, <laughs> I couldn't say it, and I was saying, like, I was like, "Fazalabad." I couldn't, I couldn't say it. And I was working with a, I was working with an Indian presenter who I got on quite well with. Her name is Nisha Pillay. She was from India, like an Anglo-Indian. Yes. And I said, Nisha, how do you say that? And luckily, the <laughs> director was cut to her camera. Well, the director was on the ball. It was Mark, I think. He was the director. He was a really good director. He was on the ball. He cut to her camera, and she says, Faisalabad. <laughs> And then I said, oh, "Thanks, Nisha, Faisalabad." So that was a really embarrassing, embarrassing time that I that I had. Another time, I, I was at in NBC on the local station in in um, Denver. I got a tooth implant put in, and it would you know how when they give, when they give you a, a crown, they give you a temporary crown. Yes. And they didn't secure it very. very <laughs> so I was worried it would fall out, and and um, my girlfriend at the time was like. She was really worried, and luckily it didn't. But I could just feel it, like getting looser and looser in my mouth when I'm <laughs> doing my presenting. I was actually the the international segment at the weekend uh, for the NBC affiliate in Denver. So that was almost the most. But you know how you when you get um, dental work done, you, it's your mouth feels different. Yes. So I I could I was struggling to to speak, you know. <laughs> what it's like so that that was a pretty embarrassing time (laughs) luckily I didn't I did make a goof reel once but that was um that wasn't that wasn't my fault somebody um had thought that I was talking about rugby and and was actually uh no I I was talking about cricket it was actually rugby and then so they were talking, it was very confusing. So I cross, made
0: cross conversations. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: yeah. So the presenter said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, it's all balls or something like that. And we <laughs> laughed. The, the, the other presenter who wanted, you know, was trying to make, you know, small talk about the wrong sport, you know, and I'm like, oh, no. what do I say? <laughs>
0: <He's> like, <laughs> um have you had anyone that you really had to pry answers out of? Maybe they kind of froze a bit on camera or on, on radio. I know when I, I did this cooking TV show for a number of years overseas and there were, I had chefs that before the cameras went on were, you know, fairly big deal in the area and were kind of full of vim and vigour. And then as soon as the, the camera was pointed at them, they just froze and it was like, you know, extracting teeth basically trying to get answers. Did, yeah, have you ever had that?
1: Yeah, I found it a bit. One time I remember I had a guy called Barry Butler who runs a, a st- audio studio in Singapore, and he's an Aussie um, probably in his 70s now, so he's been around a long time. And he, off camera, he can tell you all the stories and all that, and he's always around people doing voiceovers and, and you know, character voices. But when he came in the studio, he's been around, you know, these people for years. He really froze up. You know, huh. he just, he was umming and ring and and it really he really struggled. And also, I found that sometimes when you bring someone in to talk about something that they're passionate about, and then you may say, "Look, you might while you're in, can you t- can you do a news review? You know, like let's say they're talking about something topical about, say, kids learning." Mm. And then you do a news review, and they they just have no opinion about anything. You know, they like say, "Tell, you know, let's talk about um, you know the hospital system." And and you even though you've told them the questions, they just have they just don't know how to talk. Oh, no. so you end up you end up kind of asking the question, then giving them the giving the answer,
0: <laughs> answering and- it for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, all. yes, I completely understand that. Yeah. Now, out of all your interviews, can you tell us who's really impressed you the most?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of famous people, especially, you know, people like um, George Foreman, the boxing champion who became the the grill. Remember the Foreman grill? You know, it's
0: funny. I know him more as the guy that, you know, had the Foreman grill (laughs) than the boxing. And you know
1: what? The thing about him was that that was the point that he made. He said, look, I used to be really good at boxing, but in life you've got to move on. That's what he said. In life you've got to move on. Yes. And I thought that was really fantastic because I don't care that people know me more for my kitchen products than they do for what I did in the ring. I was a world champion, but it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. yeah. When, and, I,
1: when I interviewed him, that was in Houston, Texas. It was for ESPN in, in 2007. I was part of the Foreman Family Reality Show. Really? I so said the only way I'm going to give you an interview is if you agree to come on the form, Foreman Family Reality Show, you know, a bit like the Kardashians, right? Wow but
0: I've never you know, seen, I think I, I've seen that show because uh, overseas we had American TV in the Caribbean. So I, I've actually seen it. I, I know yes. what you're talking about. I'm in
1: one of those episodes, Lisa.
0: Wow. I have to go back now and YouTube it.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think I, I always learn from people that I, I speak to, I interviewed Nadia Comaneci, the great gymnast in New York. And, you know, she was the perfect 10 from the uh, Montreal Olympics. She was the yeah. first to get 10 out of 10. And you know, just meeting her was it was really amazing about how dedicated she was and how she was able to reinvent herself. She wasn't sort of caught up in the past. She was born in Romania. She moved to the US. She married a, another gymnast and you know, had a family and she'd really moved on. And I, I think I always get inspiration from people like that who are able to um, pivot into different areas. And that's, I think, what I've learned a lot. I actually interviewed B. Bertels from LRB Little River Band. Oh um, wow! Just the other day, and um, that was a big thrill because I love Little River Band like you. I love my vintage, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, he was great. I was so excited to talk to him, and he, we went through song after song after song. And he How was in cool. Nash,
0: is that Tennessee? Yeah. Wow. So, is there anyone that you would love to interview that you haven't had the chance to yet? Paul McCartney. Oh my God! Yes. Do you have any any questions that you don't think he's ever been asked? Something special that, or is that you want to keep that to yourself in
1: case that comes
0: up? Not really. I mean, he's been interviewed so many times. I just like to hang out with him and have a chat. That's all. That'd be amazing.
1: Yeah. So that would be the. I, I saw him once. I saw him at Heathrow Airport with. It would have been in the 90s, I think, or late 80s. With and I saw Linda. And Linda was very protective. I remember he was walking up to the check-in counter, and this was, of pre pre-9-11 days. And, but you could tell that there was this kind of uh, protective wife that was around him.
0: I think she was very good with him. They they were a good team, from what it, so, it yeah. appears. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that would be. I've interviewed Pete Best, the uh, the guy that was kicked out of the Beatles, <laughs> the drummer.
0: Oh wow.
1: Yeah. That was. What was he
0: like to interview?
1: Oh, uh, it was a bit sad actually, because uh, this would have been in the mid '80s, and he was a bit sad, you know, because we, Ringo came in just before they got big, right? Yeah. He was in the the Beatles when they went to Hamburg, and and he was there from '61 to '62. But uh, it was a bit sad. He was a he was a civil servant in
0: Liverpool. gosh yeah okay, that's sort of a bit of a come down isn't it from it what is. what could have been yeah it is, but it is yeah an interesting interview all
1: the same i'm sure very interesting yeah very interesting and he was nice you know he, he was happy to talk um you know had the scouse accent and all that
0: yeah now if there's obviously people out there that are always keen to enter into the world of radio and tv would what would be some advice you could give them
1: i think it's important to be authentic. And I think also it's important to be entertaining. Uh, You have to have a good energy. And that's one lesson that I learned, that it wasn't enough just to be there in front of the camera, you know, speaking in a monotone voice. You've got to come up with ways of um, entertaining people and also being a good storyteller. I think people learn a lot from hearing stories um, rather than if I'm going to tell you a kind of a philosophy or rules. It's better to illustrate that with a story. So I think, you know, having a story to tell and being able to hone your craft as a storyteller will always get you there.
0: That's really good advice. What, what do you think makes for a good interview? I think a good interview is one
1: that has the potential to have some unexpected turns, twists and turns. It's good to have uh, prepared questions. But I think it's a bit like cooking. You need to go with the flow and, and sort of feel your way through. Yeah, I don't like to over-prepare for interviews, but I'll always make sure I've you know, covered the material. Um, you know, I, I heard Stan Grant actually from ABC saying that um, you don't always have to be chronological you know, in interviews. You can come up with something that start with an essence uh, that, about that person, and that's often a good way to start
0: absolutely yeah no i i totally uh, agree you know sometimes i i'm chatting away and i i somebody's telling me something and i'm i completely go off on a tangent with what it is that they're talking about because it's just so fascinating uh, i get lost in their story uh, you're right i think it going with the flow is is super important thing for sure in this podcast obviously i'm a chef and a lot of times we talk about food can you think of three things that you enjoy eating, like your go-to favorites?
1: Definitely, I think you know my favorite all-time food is Indian food, and yes. um, I traveled a lot to India to work as a TV host, especially in the last few years, just before the pandemic, and I got to stay at lovely hotels, and and I love I love South Indian. I like dosas. Um, I like you know the all the things that come, that come with South Indian food, idli and vadas as well. But I also love North Indian food. I like the the creamy you know curries, uh, the naan bread, and the stuffed paratas. Um, yeah, I really love that. And, and you know, I also love you know Thai food. I went, I did a cooking course with my wife in Bangkok. Oh wow! And surprisingly that, you know, it's not that difficult, you know, once you have the, all the ingredients, it's not that difficult, And, and as, as you know, uh, at least, to, the, to cook Thai food.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, a lot of people are nervous about trying to cook Asian food, but once you sort of get into the rhythm of it, it's actually not, not a difficult uh, technique to get involved in, for sure. You've obviously lived overseas in lots of interesting places. Has there, has there ever been anything really kind of left of centre that you've eaten?
1: You know, I was thinking about this, and I don't really, like, eat scorpions or anything like this or snakes. <laughs> um, but one thing I found really strange, and, and, again, you relate to this, Lisa, having spent so much time in Singapore, was having red beans as, as a dessert. Yes. And I actually grew to love it. I grew to love it. But at first it was something that I thought, this is ridiculous. Why are you having red <laughs> beans for dessert?
0: <laughs> That's in the, uh, is it Ice Kachang? Is that I mean, what yes, it is?
1: It's is. the ice kachang, yeah.
0: Yeah. But I found yeah.
1: the red bean piratas, you know, the red bean, like you know how they have the pirata with the with the gravy. But when you have it with red bean, that's na- that's now my favorite one. It's like a red bean pancake. Yep. Yeah. That th- there's actually a place in Singapore near East Coast called Springleaf. And anyone who goes to Singapore, I would highly recommend that you check out Springleaf in the East Coast area. And try the uh, red bean prata. Um, I'm putting,
0: I'm writing that down as we speak. As I mentioned earlier, I'm heading to Singapore next year, so that's just gone down on my list of go-to's.
1: Yeah, you've got to try it. And and uh, prata is such a interesting thing because it's an adaptation of what the prata in India, but in Singapore and Malaysia, the Indians who moved there kind of did their own twist on it. And they changed it, and they made it. In fact, my daughter doesn't really like the Indian prata, but she likes the um, Malaysian and Singapore prata. So which, do I. Yes, and it's called roti Chennai in um, Malaysia. It's called prata in Singapore. It's the same thing. And I was always intrigued by the differences between Singapore and Malaysia when it came to food, and even things like kaya kaya jam, which, as you know, is the coconut jam. Mm. It's. Brown in Singapore and it's yellow, or is it the other way around? I think it's yellow in Singapore and it's brown yellow, in Malaysia.
0: Yeah, 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 yellow
1: in Singapore and brown in Malaysia, but it's the same thing. And so it's interesting to see how there are these twists on cuisine from other countries in this sort of melting
0: pot of, of Singapore and Malaysia. Absolutely, you know, you're talking about um, parado when I was living in going to school in Singapore, um, you know, kids in. Back in Australia, probably had Vegemite sandwiches after school. Our go-to was to get a little drawstring plastic bag filled with curry gravy and a parada, And that was our after school snack. And oh my gosh, to this day, that is just heaven on earth to me.
1: Oh, it's brilliant. And I, I love the, you know, the image that you've conjured there with the the string of the plastic bag and the <laughs> yeah. tea that I've made. The tea that I've made for you on when mm. um, has come in. I, I used to get the tea like that, the ginger tea, the te halia ginger yes. tea from those um hawker stalls and that was you know i'd go for a walk or a run and then i'd come back my reward would be to get one of those teas in a bag you know straw so good
0: so good yes and have there been any experiences when you've been around the world that like a dining experience that stands out more than others
1: yeah, surprisingly, there, there is one I want to mention. And when I was doing the Singapore show weekend mornings in, in 2018 and 2019, it's pretty much I could do anything I wanted. And, and as you know, I did the interview with um, Neil Perry. Yeah. Um, so a guy that he was working with was called Kirk Westaway. who was a British chef who worked at Jan which is the Swiss Hotel, the Stamford, which you may remember there is the tall hotel near the Singapore Cricket Club kind of the white one ah, there
0: yes yes i know what you're talking about yeah yeah so that i've
1: done a lot of things at that um at that at that uh, building that that hotel and coincidentally kirk westaway is a british chef who uh came on my show with neil perry and spoke about his restaurant Jan j double and i was invited to have the gastronomic journey the artisanal food uh the 10 course Modern British cuisine, and it, you'd laugh. You know, everyone thinks British cuisine's no good and all that. <laughs> but, but as you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a pescatarian. So he adapted it for me. So wow. all, and my wife and daughter came along, and it's right at the top of the Swiss Hotel, the Stanford, and you've got a fantastic view of Singapore. And you know, course after course, and different seafood, and even simple things like uh, eggs um, done in a special way. Uh, it, definitely people should check it out. And yeah. Kirk Westaway is a really dynamic young chef. And I think they got two Michelin stars as well. I think. Oh, that's super impressive. Yeah. So that was that was a 10-course meal. And my daughter, I think she was about nine at the time, and she was totally sold on fine dining. That was the turning point for her. because um, my daughter and wife came along to that that um that meal. And, oh, and I, that's I, so I think good. I think that was probably the most memorable meal that I've had in in recent years and it's funny that I'm I'm talking about British cuisine and I and yet I (laughs) love I love Thai food I love Indian food Japanese food Um, but this British British cuisine was fantastic
0: (laughs) now um, as well as food I talk about travel Um, are there any places you've obviously traveled a lot but are there any places that are on the list of ones that you'd really like to get to
1: Yes, three places I reckon that I'd like to get to: Cuba, Argentina, and Brazil. Fantastic choices. I've never been south of Mexico, uh, and I know you've been in the Caribbean. I don't know how far south you've gone uh, on a boat, but yeah, I've- you know,
0: Cuba. Cuba's been on my list too, and it's little, literally, literally spitting distance from where I, I was based. So. Yes, um, me too. I Cuba is, I've had many, many friends live and work there and everybody just raves about it. So I think that's an excellent choice.
1: Yeah, I don't speak Spanish, which is a bit of a shame, but ah. I can speak a bit of French, but I don't think that will get me very far. No. <laughs> but I, also um, Argentina, I've always been intrigued by Argentina as a country with obviously the, the European connections to it. Um, yeah. i proud. Culture. I worked with a lot of Argentine people when I was at ESPN in, in the US, and because they did a, an Argentine sports service, a sports show. So, the, a lot of Argentines that I would work with, they were always the most arrogant of all the, <laughs> of all the, the Latinos. They were the most arrogant, the most very proud. And Brazil, I had, a, I had a housemate in Atlanta who was a, a pathologist from Brazil. He was studying at Emory University when I had my flat in my apartment, and he always invited me to come and visit him in Brazil.
0: Wow, was,
1: Jason, you must come to Belo Horizonte. I want to tell you around. It's time you come. So um, well, you, like you definitely to- need to do that. Yes, I, I thought I might have got there, you know, being a soccer broadcaster, but I never did. That was 2014. Brazil hosted the the World Cup.
0: Yes. Now, and what do you what are you up to currently? I am doing a few things.
1: Um, I continue to fill in on 4BC for Spencer. I am also doing voluntary work at Logan City 101 FM, which is uh, I've done that for about 18 months and I do a show there. And as you know, both of us love uh, classic Aussie music. So I have a lot of legends on it. I, I see it as a platform to do really great content. And to me, it doesn't matter that it's a community radio station. To me,
0: it's the same as being on BBC or CNN or 4BC. I agree. I yeah. I love community radio. Um, years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I actually had a, a jazz show on 4MBS. Oh, wow. I didn't know that.
1: Oh, yeah. wow. Well, yeah, well, I don't have to sell you on it. No. Um, but, yeah, I've done really some fun things on that. And it's a good team. And, and as you know, Logan, south of Brisbane, is kind of a growing area. Yes. And, you know, there there are quite a few social problems there, but I, I really feel that it's a good way of um, giving back in, a, in an area I love doing. It doesn't seem like I'm doing anything that that's um, too difficult. Uh, you know, and, just, and I'll have to get you on sometime, Lisa. You'll have to come on and do a...
0: I would love to. Spencer actually said to me the other day, I mentioned that... Uh, I was going to be chatting to you on my podcast and he, he, he said, has he got you on yet? Cause he's, he's going through 4BC interviewing everybody.
1: <laughs> it's true. It's true. I want to get you on. And I want to get Shane Barring on, you know, my two buddies from uh, 4BC cause um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just such fun. And, and, and Spencer came on and, and it was really, really good. And we, we spoke about, you know we're not the same person we we can be in the same room at the same time because we actually have quite a lot in common uh, you know he's a bit more quirky than i am i'm maybe a bit more mainstream and he <laughs> likes sport and i do but a lot of things we have in common we love cats uh we love maps um
0: maps and cats
1: maps and cats it could be cats. a kids book yeah, and we love bargains. We love to shop for bargains. So it was such fun getting him on. So yeah, you're you're next on the list,
0: Lisa. <laughs> I that sounds amazing. Now, if you if you hadn't got into media, do you, was there a backup idea on what you might have done with your career? Well, I think I wanted to be a secret agent when I was probably about <laughs> <three or> nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always time for that. I'm sure you could be yeah, exactly. very successful at it. Yeah, I think I, don't, I mean
1: I I could sort of flat, flatter myself and say maybe I could have done law, but to be honest, I'm not sure I'd be suited to that. I think acting, acting, and um, and journalism that would be the the main ones that that kind of lit up for me. Um, yeah, film, film, something around media. I definitely I think that was always what I wanted to do. I I, I, th- I think the challenge that I had when I was young was to kind of uh, have a, a life that was conventional, and I like the, th- the fact that journalism was a very unconventional life with different hours. I, mm. I don't know how I'd cope with a nine to five type of job.
0: Yes, yeah. I mean, you're you're very lucky. There are very few people in this world, I think, that find their passion in life, in work, which plays such a huge part of our lives. Um, for you to have found that is is fantastic. For sure, you know, I'm very grateful. I I have no, you know, I would
1: have no idea that I would have done the things I've done. And um, given how lacking in confidence I was when I started out, uh, especially when it came to being in front of the camera, but, but what I think I learned was that just take a step at a time and also set goals and, and think about where you'd like to be in, say, five years' time. And I wrote down where I'd want to be, and it took me, like, five years to get on to CNN. They didn't want me at first. I started, right. tried to get in there first at twenty in 2014. Sorry, 1994. Didn't get in until 1999, but I kept trying. So... I think what I lacked in talent I had I made up for in persistence and determination.
0: Your perseverance got you there in the end for sure. Yes. Um, there's a question uh, Jason, that I ask every one of my guests that comes on and um, relating to the, the title of the show basically, but if you had won the lottery and you could be on any amazing yacht, large or small in any destination, what type of boat and what destination?
1: Oh, I think I'd love to go to the Caribbean um, boat wise, just something that's, um, you know, not too fancy, but big enough that I can sort of stretch back and enjoy it. I've never been to the Caribbean. Uh, I, no, I haven't. I haven't been to the Caribbean. I think that and I'm a bit jealous of you, Lisa, that you've spent a lot of time over there. So yes. that, that might be nice. I've been to Cancun. That was that obviously not considered the Caribbean, but that was fun. Close. Yeah, not too far away. Um, I've been to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico, but... I would just love to go to the Caribbean, I think, on a on a yacht. Um, that's an,
0: an excellent choice. You can't go wrong. There's a, a gazillion fantastic destinations all in that area.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't now, even Jason, mind being on a cruise, you know.
0: I w- I've never been on a proper cruise either. So. Yeah, you should totally do that for sure. Yeah, yeah that's a good starting point because yeah. then you can pick the destinations that you want to go back to and spend more time at. Yes, now, if people want to follow you on social media or websites or all of the above, how, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can
1: follow me on Instagram at Jason Dacey, J-A-S-O-N-D-A-S-E-Y, same on Twitter. Um, I've also got um, a broadcaster page on on Facebook. And um, yeah, that's about it. LinkedIn as well, of course, by all means, if anyone's out out there is interested to
0: talk to, talk to me professionally, uh, LinkedIn, I'm quite active on that as well. That's fantastic. Jason, I, I'm so impressed with everything that you've done and you continue to do. I, I really am in awe of you, and I'm so grateful that you took time out of what I'm sure is another busy day. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure, Lisa. It's been a lot of fun, and you've talked about things that I haven't thought about for a long time and definitely given me the idea of heading to the Caribbean one day and uh, being in a luxury yacht there.
0: That would be fantastic. Yeah. Well listen, have enjoy the rest of your day and um I look forward to uh chatting to you soon on your radio. I'll
1: definitely reach out to you and get you on. Thanks, Lisa.
0: No problem. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Before I go, if you'd like to hear more information on today's podcast or you have any questions at all for me, you can contact me at my website, lisamead.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you can even follow me at Chef Lisa Mead on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Chef Lisa Mead, and you've been listening to Tales of a Luxury Yacht Chef.